Hello, my name is Kiva Weisinger, and this is the first podcast in what I hope to be an ongoing series called Who the Heck Are These Guys? A Kiva's Guide to the Jewish Library. In it, I hope to be going through the uh, people who make up the books that are in a Jewish library, starting with this series, which will be a series on the commentators on the Bible, and hopefully going through commentators on uh, Gemara and uh, halachic codifications and so on and so forth. So we will begin with a intro to biblical commentary, its history, and assumptions. Okay, so let me start by asking you the following question. What does Humpty Dumpty mean? I don't mean the words Humpty Dumpty. Those seem to be some sort of nonsense. I mean the poem, the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Uh, In case you haven't heard it, in which case I would uh, demand a refund for your kindergarten, uh, it goes something like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. I know, this is already a very serious Torah podcast. Um, So let me ask you, what does that mean? What happens in that that poem or nursery rhyme? Well, if you're only looking at the text of Humpty Dumpty, what it is describing is a man who is sitting on a wall for some reason or another, and a man or presumably a woman, it doesn't say. No, it does say. All the couldn't put him back together again. Okay. Uh, I went a little bit too progressive there. Uh, grabbed a little bit too too much. But, uh, so Humpty Dumpty is sitting on a wall. And uh, because of the laws of gravity, he falls down. And for some reason, this is a matter of national importance. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. They can't put him back together. Uh, they can't, presumably, they can't fix what uh, the fall had done to him. Uh, so that would be a surface reading of Humpty Dumpty. Now, here's the issue. If you look at any uh, illustrated book which has Humpty Dumpty, and most of the books which have Humpty Dumpty are illustrated because they are for children, uh, Humpty Dumpty in those uh, surf- in those pictures is never depicted as a man. No, he is in fact depicted as an egg. And at this point, uh, at this point, I have to wonder how you determine the gender of an egg. Uh, I think maybe the whole point of an egg is that we don't know its gender yet. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, and that. I suppose changes some of the meaning of the poem. First of all, it's a man, not it's an egg, not a man, uh, and then raises more questions about why this is a matter of national emergency, such that the king's horses and the king's men need to intervene. Um, but it does, but it does seem to be the traditional reading that Humpty Dumpty is an egg. So let's assume for a second that you are some sort of scholar. Uh, maybe you are. A archaeologist digging up what remains of human civilization, uh, and uh, you come across this poem with the picture of an egg there. So, how are you going to read this? How are you going to read this poem? Are you going to take the surface reading and then reject what seems to be the traditional reading of 
you know, there's a tradition of interpretation that involves Humpty Dumpty being interpreted as an egg. Um, but it doesn't, that doesn't appear to be in the text. It doesn't seem to be something that arises naturally from the text. Or So you could take it as, you know, this is clearly about a man. At some point, you know, somebody made up this thing about an egg. Uh, we don't know where that is, but that is clearly describing a, uh, you know, a person. Or you could say, well, the tradition seems to indicate that this is an egg. Let's see what kind of things in the text indicate that it's an egg. Um, so you'll say, couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Normally, human beings, when they fall onto the ground, don't break in half. Eggs break in half, so therefore, maybe that is what made people... That is what clues us into the fact that Humpty Dumpty is, in fact, an egg. Then, let's say you were going, you know, another level here. Let's say, you know, you, you decide, well... Clearly, this text is not meant to tell us a piece of history. Uh, clearly, this text is meant you know, not as a historical record, but to you know teach us something or to tell us something. So you might say, well, what's being described here is not you know a man falling off a wall, but it is actually a political allegory for King whoever what's his face uh, and his uh, you know political struggles, uh, and, you know, that explains why it's a matter of national emergency, that King's horses and King's men, and, you know, uh, that is the proper way to interpret it, and only a fool would, uh, you know, take this literally. Or you could uh, say, oh, actually, you know, this is, the, the meaning of this is not political, it's not, you know, uh, allegorical in terms of that, but it's meant to, you know, convey fundamental human truths about, uh, you know, human psychology. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the Humpty Dumpty represents, you know, man's uh, state of, uh, you know, I don't know, come up with whatever psychobabble you want, read Jordan Peterson, I don't know, uh, something like, uh, represents the leap into the absurd and uh, his fundamental unsure, uh, you know, insecurity, living on a wall, blah, 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 blah. Um, or, yeah, so I'm not going to get into, like, every single thing. I'm not going to make sure that, like, every single... Uh, you know, type of biblical interpretation is represented in this example. I want to give you an example of the various ways a text could be read uh, and beyond just the simple, plain, literal meaning. First of all, you have traditional readings which may arise out of uh, which may arise out of, you know, a reading of the text or maybe possibly contradict a simple reading of the text. You have uh, you know, a uh, indication that maybe this text is meant to be taken symbolically or allegorically, or maybe it's, you know, maybe you're supposed to find a different meaning in it. Um, so our, our answer to what Humpty Dumpty means is going to depend on our definition of what meaning is. What is, you know, the intent of the text what and you know how you're supposed to interpret it so with that example set in our minds uh i want to talk about biblical interpretation um and you know i think this is something very important because when we talk about the torah we tend to talk about the torah as like interpreted in one way 
And I think the balance of Jewish tradition shows that it has been interpreted in multiple different ways um, and with multiple different methodologies. And to fully understand what the Torah is trying to tell us, instead of you know focusing on like one methodology, if we we should in fact focus on the various ways in which uh, people try to understand this text. Um, so I'm going to go through. In, in this introduction, I want to give you an idea of the issues that uh, face biblical commentators and give you an idea of on what sort of criteria we're going to evaluate where they play a role. Um, I, want, I think that in order to understand who these people are uh, and what they're doing, uh, you, need to, well, you need to understand what they're doing. You need to understand, you know, their assumptions that make up that have that they're basing their commentary off of, and that will and and knowing that will be make you able to read their commentary in a knowledgeable way. I think that's half the battle of being able to read, not just you know the linguistic stuff, but also knowing what is he trying to do, and uh, how is he trying to do it. Um, so I want to run through in this, you know, initial podcast a, the the factors that biblical commentators differ on. So the easiest one for me to do would be pshat and drash. Uh, in case you haven't heard those terms, pshat means you know the simple reading of the text, and drash means a uh, not simple reading of the text. I've left those deliberately vague. Uh, because the definitions thereof are often very vague. It's said that the real definitions of pshat is the thing that I think is the meaning of the text, and the real definition of drash is the thing that you think the meaning of the text is. Mine is a simple reading. Mine is obvious, the, obviously the way the text is meant to be read. Yours is, you know, some sort of, you know, fanciful interpretation that has no meaning in the text. Um, I don't think that's particularly helpful, uh, for especially for beginners, because... Your definition of what pshat is, or what the simple meaning of the text is, is going to depend largely on what you think the text is supposed to accomplish. If you think the text is supposed to accomplish, you know, teaching us uh, moral lessons, then you're going to take it much differently than somebody who thinks that it's supposed to be teaching you some matter of historical record. So, um... So, as we're going to see... Different commentators have very different definitions of pshat. Rashi's definition of pshat, which will be uh, the way that the Midrash, the the way that uh, the rabbis interpreted the text, and the way to and resolving textual inconsistencies in the text using midrashic uh, material, is going to be very different from like Ibn Ezra's definition of pshat, which will be you know what it says with some exceptions, or Rashbam's definition of pshat, which be, will be what it says with less exceptions in Ibn Ezra, uh, which we will get to. Um, so, the pshat and drash are useful terms to apply in your daily life, like, you know, if you're assessing whether a reading of a uh, particular, particular text is accurate or not. Uh, you could say, I think that's, you know, pshat reading, and, you know, I think that's a drash reading. But it's not so helpful to for us to understand, like, the different di biblical approaches, because most of them think that they're giving pshat. 
Musa, the and the classical definition of drash is you know something that's not based in the text. But we'll see a lot of these drash commentators. I use air quotes when I'm saying drash commentators. Very much think that they're interpreting the pshat, uh, the the simple meaning of the text. So I want to go a little bit beyond just pshat and drash, and I want to talk about which factors uh, they're going to uh, are going to contribute to their understanding of what pshat is. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, independent versus traditional text. When we talked about Humpty Dumpty, we were talking about the, the contradiction between the simple meaning of the text, which says nothing about eggs, and the traditional reading of the text, which you know we know for a long time, almost as I, I didn't research this extensively, but almost as long as Humpty Dumpty has been written, there have been drawings of it accompanied with, uh, you know, a drawing of eggs accompanied with it. There's a you know, contradiction between those two. When it comes to uh, Tanakh, the Bible, um, there is a traditional reading and a independent meaning. I wouldn't say simple meaning. I would say independent meaning. What is it? What do I mean by traditional reading? Well, we're going to start with you know, this is going to be the history of biblical interpretation. History of biblical interpretation leading up to the medieval era, which we will start. But basically, Torah is written. Uh, there's, you know, the the first base of Mikdash, the second base of Mikdash, the Torah is written or, you know, given by God. Um, and uh, during the second temple era, there are these people called Chazal. Uh, you know, if the, uh, depending on your background, you may hear like the Pharisees, the rabbis. Uh, we're going to call them Chazal because that's just what Chazal stands for. Chachamim, Zichronim Lebracha, the sages of their blessed memory. We're going to call them Chazal, just because that's, you know, for ease of use. So Chazal are involved in a project of biblical interpretation in which they, uh, which is called the uh, Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law. So the claim that is usually made, and I'll get into why I think this particular claim is not very well represented in the Jewish sources, is that there's a, you know, when Hashem gave the Torah to Moshe and Harsinai, uh, at the moment of divine revelation, there's a written Torah, which is the Bible as we have it, and then uh, God gives Moshe, you know, a bunch of other, you know, uh, a, a way of interpreting the laws that are written, uh, a, a way that are uh, a way of interpreting, you know, interpretations of those laws, and uh, you know, tradition and uh, you know how to read those laws and a body of laws that are not necessarily represented in the Torah. So Chazal's project is to read back into the Torah the traditional way, the tra their traditional understanding of what the Torah is saying based on you know the traditions that they have, whether those are from Sinai or whether they are from way back or whether they are from. Uh, whether they're their own innovation is an open question, I think. Um, you know, Rambam may you know, say that you're a kofer if you don't believe everything's from Sinai, but I don't think he necessarily believed like everything, everything had to be from Sinai. Um, in more liberal circles, you'll see people say that, you know, Chazal, you know, uh, interpreted the Torah to, uh, you know, get rid of uh, mitzvot's uh, Get of get rid of things that you know were not in line with uh, you know the uh, the flow of the ages or like their time. They were able to get rid of things that were immoral, um, and then you know the traditional side is like no, they were just 
going uh, based on exactly what Moshe received at Sinai. I think there's a middle ground between those two. Um, it's clear that a lot of places, that most of the time, they were interpreting based on the rules as they knew them and trying to find justification for them in the, uh, in the text itself. Um, sometimes those readings are far-fetched, um, but they were trying to justify laws that pre-existed. In the Humpty Dumpty example, they were trying to look into the text to find uh, something that uh, find something in the text that coincided with the laws at, co- uh, that coincided with the fact that uh, all the uh, all the everything about Humpty Dumpty has an egg in it. Um, I think that's clear. Most of the time, they didn't. I, I don't think they saw themselves as innovators, as people who, uh, you know, had the ability to get rid of things that they didn't like in the biblical text. On the other hand, it's clear that sometimes they did. Uh, one uh, command, one commandment that this is uh, particularly noticeable is uh, Ben Soramora, which describes a uh, child, uh, a, a, a child of uh, parents who, and the the child goes and you know, uh, takes her money, wasted on you know meat and wine, and is you know, very disrespectful, very bad boy, um, and they uh, the parents bring him to the basement and he's put to death. Uh, so that's horrifying to modern ears. Interestingly, if you look at Josephus. Um, he says, well, this is obviously very good. In fact, you know, uh, this is actually less, uh, this is actually, like, much more lenient than we are accustomed to in, like, Roman territories, which is interesting. Um, but it's clear that Chazal were kind of uncomfortable with it, and there is a, a lot of laws, a lot of, you know, uh, interpretation given to uh, making sure that the process for implementing that law are so onerous that it never happens. Like, one famous thing is that parents have to be the same height. They have to have, like, the same timbre of voice because if there's, like, a uh, a, a possible reason to dis- to respect one parent over another, then that may be the cause for the child's rebellion and not pure evil. Um, so that's... So I think... However you want to see you know, Chazal's project of biblical interpretation, it's clear that they had a traditional reading of the text that sometimes went against the you know, plain meaning of the text. Uh, sometimes their halachic, uh, the way that they interpreted the legal portions of the Torah, um, you know, involve sort of, you know... Uh, Tricks of inter- like tricks of interpretation, uh, the you know ways that the Torah is interpreted include like if these two words appear in like two different places, then it teaches us something about both laws. That's not necessarily like a straightforward meaning of the text in terms of like this and this happened, right? So when the medieval era comes around and people are uh, looking at this Torah looking at, you know, the text, and especially when the Karaites come around who reject rabbinic interpretation entirely and say that, no, only we, uh, only the Torah can be interpreted literally, uh, the Torah can only be interpreted literally, we reject any prior rabbinic authority, then you have rabbinic Jews who are like, well, we gotta, you know, prove them wrong, or we gotta look at the, uh, you know, text and figure out uh, how this works. So, the the first thing I want to talk about the first category of uh, you know differences in uh, 
and uh, you know methodology is an independent text versus traditional text. To what extent does a given biblical commentator think that uh, you have to see the text in line with the traditional reading of Chazal, which includes, by the way, both legal and narrative portions. It's not just legal. Uh, it's not. It's not just you know legal derivations that Chazal are involved in. It's also traditions about uh, the stories in Tanakh and you know what the, how old this person was and like what this person did and who uh, who this person who's uh, under one name actually is. There's a lot of biblical interpretation of the narrative sections, and you know, a given biblical commentator has to decide, can I evaluate the text on its own, or do I have to take into account the traditional readings? Um, but what we said about the narrative portions is even more important with the legal portions, because now if you start messing with the legal portions, now you're, la you're destroying the basis of your actual practice if you're a rabbinic Jew. You're saying that, you know, you might be saying that Chazal got their, you know, the simple text of the Torah, which we believe is, you know, from God, wrong in some way. So whether you see the text of the Torah as independent from the traditional reading or dependent on the traditional reading is going to affect a lot of what... Uh, how you see the text. In fact, this would be like the most traditional understanding of what the pshat versus drash is, like independent text versus traditional text. But if you're reading in the traditional text, it's not that you don't believe in a simple meaning. It's that you think that the simple meaning has to be what the traditional reading is. So that's the first thing I want to deal with. Next thing I want to you know, uh, draw your attention to is literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. When we talked about Humpty Dumpty, we were talking about like whether this should be seen as like you know a retelling of facts or whether this should be seen as like symbolic of like political or uh, uh, political developments or like you know human psychology or something like that. So literal meaning versus uh, symbolic meaning is going to mean that. Um, the degree to which a given biblical commentator sees the events and narratives, uh, events, narratives, and legal portions of the text as representative of it itself and meant to be read literally, or whether they're, or not even representative, or like, you know, just a relaying of facts, or whether they're meant to symbolize something else. This is especially important when we're talking about like the mystical uh, readings of the text from, you know, Kabbalistic sources, where it's not that they don't believe in pshat. It's that they believe that the pshat of the, the, the simple meaning of the text is representative of, you know, higher Kabbalistic truths. Um, so the degree to, so literal meaning versus symbolic meaning is going to affect how you view the events, how you view, you know, the text itself. Um, and that's the second, you know, area of uh, difference I want to uh, talk about. And, uh, I should have mentioned this like when I was starting the the categories, but it's not that it's an on-off switch. This is what I like about the categories that came up. It's not like it's an on-off switch. Either you're an independent text reader or a traditional text reader. This is a continuum between you know uh, very independent text, like we'll see Rashbam, or very traditional text, like we'll see you know Rashi and even some even more than that. 
or you know literal meaning um we'll see like you know ibn ezra and most of the uh, you know classic shot based commentaries there's this symbolic meaning uh all the way there all the way towards symbolic meaning would be kabbalistic reading but you know somewhere in the middle would be you know somebody who wants to draw out moral lessons from the torah somebody like Rolbach, who sees uh you know the events are actually happening but they have meaning beyond just you know the the simple meaning of the fact that it happened uh, next thing I want to deal with is uh, linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic con contextualism. That is, those are some very big words, but uh, I'm going to explain. Um, when you're given a text like the Torah, especially like a sacred text, um, one thing a commentator has to decide is how closely am I going to read? If I see like a different word than is usual, am I going to read into every single possible meaning of the uh, every single every single possible like uh meaning this could have that it's used this way or is my intent more context more like contextual more um well it says that because if it didn't if it said a different word you would have asked me the same question uh, so somebody like, you know, Malbim is going to see, and this is, this, by the way, this is very important when it comes to, like, interpretation of poetry, because one of the poetic forms that Tanakh uses is repetition. And if you're somebody like the Malbim, every time it repeats something, it's saying something different. If you're somebody like you know, Ibn Ezra, who's just like, well, this is poetry, uh, don't ask me so much on poetry, you're going to, you know, see the meaning is significantly different. Um... So that's linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism. The degree to which you think every single, you know, thing is a uh, every single thing is a like a new th new opportunity for interpretation, or whether you're just reading it and you know trying to fit it into context. Um, the next thing is uh, tricky, a little trickier, uh, maybe close to one of the meanings I already said, but uh, let's let's tackle this. Um, mediated text versus unmediated text. Um, this is, I'll use the example of the rationalists. Um, if you have a story in Tanakh which involves miracle, uh, you know, something subverting the natural order of things, to what extent are you willing to reinterpret that so that it doesn't conflict with rationality? Um, are you willing to go... Well, actually, this, you know, we know that science doesn't work this way. We know that, you know, nature doesn't work this way. So we're going to see this as, uh, you know, something that was naturally occurring or something that, you know, is allegor uh, something is allegorical and not meant to be taken literally. Or am I going to see this as, no, I have to, you know, read this as it is. Um, and one thing I want to point out is, you know, because uh, for various reasons, I can get into this, uh, we tend to interpret, a, a, associate pshat or the simple meaning of the text with, you know, rationalism of, you know, I'm a rational person and I see, you know, I see, uh, you know, science is good and, you know, I don't see the, um, and I think, you know, a straightforward meaning of the text without, you know, uh, resorting to Midrashim, but also I believe that, you know, uh, because science is real, then, you know, the first couple Prakim Abrashis are not meant to be taken literally. But 
those two aren't necessarily associated. If you're willing to take the two, first two portions, the uh, first two prakima of Bracious in a way that's non-literal because of you know scientific means, scientific you know uh, ideas, then you're not interpreting things literally. And sometimes these, th and uh, a lot of times these things are actually in contradiction of you know being a rational person who doesn't accept miracles and doesn't accept uh, you know. Uh, uh, doesn't accept like anthropomorphism. That's a big one because there's a lot of that in Tanakh. Um, and if you're a rationalist, you have to reinterpret that. Uh, you know, and the same would apply, I believe, to mystical approaches. Like if you see something that uh, you know goes against like a mystical reading, to what extent are you willing to interpret that? Well, to what extent is your ideology? Uh, acting as a mediator between you and the biblical text, and to what extent are you uh, taking the text as it is? There's no, and one thing I want to point out: there's no value judgment between any of these categories. Like, I'm not saying it's better to be, you know, unmediated text or better to be a mediated text, better to be a mediated text reader. These are just the different, different, uh, you know. Uh, criteria that you come that you come to the biblical text with, it may be very necessary for us to reinterpret, uh, you know, Tanakh to make more sense with our, you know, scientific things, or it may make more sense. Uh, it may make less sense. We have to balance, you know, a lot of different things with a pure sense of literalism. Then the last category I want to talk about. Um, Hold on, because I don't have this written in my notes, and I just want to, uh, you know, see where I wrote it down on my computer. Um, hang with me a second. And, you know, if I was better at, uh, you know, audio editing, I would probably edit this out, but I'm just starting on this. Um, so the last category is, uh, now that I have it in front of me, on the page versus by the book. To what extent are you interpreting the thing in front of you in the context of, you know, all of Tanakh, all of Chumash? Are you concerned about this contradicting with another thing in Chumash? Are you concerned with you know, making this make sense with another thing in Chumash? Or are you just concerned with interpreting the, the Pasuk that's right in front of you? Uh, is your scope, you know, narrow or is your scope wide? Are you trying to, you know, make a cohesive whole out of, you know, Tanakh? Or are you just interested in just explaining the words that are in this uh, Pasuk or explaining the terms that are in this Pasuk? And if it contradicts with something elsewhere, then whatever. Um, you know, there are commentaries that will do either of these things. Rashi, for the most part, doesn't seem all that concerned with, like, making contradictions go away in, in Tanakh. Um, but somebody like... Uh, you know, especially the modern commentaries, what with them having to respond to biblical criticism, they're very concerned with making sure that the contradictions are minimized. In fact, um, Menashe ben Israel uh, wrote a uh, commentary, which we sold at the Sfarim sale, in, like this big book. It was like uh, something, something that was way more badass than it actually... It was entitled something way more badass than it actually was. It was like The Defender. And uh, but it was him just trying to figure out how to resolve every single biblical contradiction. You'll see sometimes on like atheist websites, there's, a, there's somebody did like an infographic of here are all the things that 
uh, you know, contradict in, you know, in in the Old Testament or in the New Testament uh, or in the Bible. And, uh, you know, if one thing I hope people get out of this is like, they are not the first ones to notice this. This has been one of the focuses of biblical commentary since the beginning. In fact, Chazal are much more concerned with this than a lot of the biblical uh, biblical commentators. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, the drusher of Chazal, a lot of the interpretation of Chazal is like resolving contradictions. Um, so those are my five categories. Five categories are uh, independent text versus traditional text, uh, you know, the degree to which you're evaluating, uh, you know, the text in front of you uh, within the traditional reading or independent of the traditional reading, uh, literal meaning versus symbolic meaning, whether you're reading the text in front of you as representing just the text in front of you versus whether you see it as representative of something else, be it, you know, political realities or psychological realities, moral realities, or like, you know, mystical realities. Um Linguistic, omnis uh, linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism, to what degree you're willing to, you know, uh, interpret every word as its own thing versus uh, how you're reading it just based on the context that, that it is. Uh, mediated text versus unmediated text, to what degree is your uh, specific ideology, whether it be rationalism, mysticism, uh, you, know, uh, imper uh, you know, current science, whatever, uh, is a mediator between you and the you know literal meaning of the text uh, between or you know the unmediated text. Whether you're just gonna say, uh, well, the Torah says that the, it's created in six days. That's what the Torah says. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that you don't accept science. It means that you just think that the Torah is not necessarily science. But it could mean that you're an atheist. I don't know. Um, and then the last category is on the page versus by the book. Uh, to what extent are you seeing the verse in front of you as in a vacuum, sort of similar to independent text, uh, but, you know, to what extent are you seeing it in the con wider context of, you know, in the entirety of Tanakh versus are you seeing it as, you know, just by itself and you're not overly concerned with uh, fitting it into the rest of Tanakh? So, you know, hopefully this was a good start and hopefully this was uh, clear. Um, next week we will be beginning with Rashi and his understanding of uh, what a biblical commentator is supposed to do, which, you know, uh, he may be the first biblical commentator, so it's pretty important, and understanding how he views, what he views his job as, and me just airing pet peeves about people calling Rashi Drash. Uh, you know, I go on that rant now, but I want you to listen next week, so... Listen next week when we tackle Rashi and, you know, come at it with an open mind because you may know Rashi from, you know, as that guy who, uh, you know, I learned in elementary school who I've grown past, but I'm going to tell you, Rashi's much more interesting than you're giving him credit for. Um, so until next time, this is Akiva, uh, and uh, thank you for listening to the inaugural, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, inaugural podcast of the Who the Heck Is That Guy podcast with Akiva Weisinger. Thank you and hope to hear hope to see you next time. And if you've got comments or questions, feel free to email or comment on the Facebook page.